Let's pray. Father, we ask now, as we just heard, that you would mold us and change us, that you would shape us. We put ourselves um, before you and ask that your word would do its work in our life. You say that your word will accomplish the work that you set it out to do. We can count on that, and we pray that would happen in our hearts, that you would give us new life, that you would give us hope, that you give us purpose, that we would leave confident in uh, your, your presence and the work of your Spirit in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We are looking at the Apostles' Creed, and today we are uh, we're looking at a statement in the Creed that has been actually somewhat inflammatory for people, especially people on the fringes of the Christian faith, because it's one thing for someone on, kind of on the fringes of faith. It's like, ah, I'm trying to get my mind around who God is or if there's a God. I'm trying to just kind of wrestle with that. It's one thing for a person on the fringes of faith to say, I believe in God, or I'm pretty close to believing in God. Um, It's one thing for a person on the fringes of faith to say, and I I can believe that there is a Jesus Christ, that this historical figure, that he has this divine quality about him. But it's another thing for a person on the fringes of faith to say, and I believe that Jesus Christ was born to a virgin. And that's what we're going to look at today, the statement in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ was born by the Holy Spirit, born to the Virgin Mary. So as we've been doing every week, as we've gone through the series, I invite you to stand up, and we are going to say the Apostles' Creed together. The words will be on the screens, and let us read this out loud together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now go ahead and be seated. And as we've been going through this series, what we've been saying is we're, we're trying to make a connection between these words that we're saying and a deep aspect of our faith, an important, a life-changing aspect of our faith. What is life-changing about saying we believe that Jesus Christ was born to the Virgin Mary? Isn't that kind of this unnecessary part of our belief? No. And today we're going to talk about why it is so important to, to say that we believe that Jesus was from the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And I ask you to take out your Bible 
and turn to Luke chapter 1. And if you didn't bring your Bible, you can find one in one of the seats in front of you, hopefully underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And if you're looking at our one of our Bibles, turn to page 1012, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. This morning, I want to look at two questions concerning Jesus' birth. And the first question, we can ask a couple of questions. Can't we? One question is, how was he born? And people tend to focus on this question. How was Jesus born? How was Jesus born? Because... I mean, let's face it, this is the strangest birth of all time. And it it states this miraculous nature of this birth. And, And too often today, people accuse Christianity of being outside of the boundaries of science. And you might have heard someone say, you know, I can't be a Christian because I'm a person of science, and I just can't reconcile my scientific beliefs and these statements of faith that you're making, they just don't seem to mesh up. So from a faith perspective, what can we say about how God interacts with this this physical world that he created? And I think we could say a couple of things. We could say, one, that God uses physical laws, natural processes to govern, to direct the world. So God uses natural laws that he created, the law of gravity. And we can, we can be thankful for the law of gravity. And that generally governs um, this physical world, one of the laws that governs this physical world. The law of inertia would be another one. God develops um, processes, natural processes, like the process of photosynthesis or... Relevant to our message today, our topic today, this physical process that God developed regarding human conception and pregnancy. And God generally operates, governs the world through these laws and processes. 
But another thing that we can say about God's interaction with this physical world is that God's activity can transcend these processes. God walls up the water on the Red Sea and allows the Israelites to safely pass through. Okay, well, that is a suspension of the normal laws of fluid dynamics. God walling up the water, not with concrete barriers, but just air. Uh, Do you remember the story of God making the sun stand still? for Joshua and the Israelite army as they fought the, uh, the Amorites. God gave more hours of sunlight. Scripture says the sun stands, stood still. So somehow God stilled the rotation of the earth, and he did so without there being this physical trauma. I mean, the earth rotates at about surface, about five football fields every second, so pretty fast that we're moving. God stilled that rotation without kind of calamity and craziness happening on on the earth. God, God can do that. This is easy for God. God in the person of Jesus walks on water. This is easy for God. So it's silly for people, some people to say, okay, I believe in this creator God. But I don't believe that Jesus was born like this. I think it's just all made up. And it was 2,000 years ago. People back then, they were primitive people. They didn't know what they were talking about. I think this kind of this is legend that grew over the years. Listen, you know, consider that the person who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who was recording this, is Luke. And church tradition says he was a medical doctor. He, he knew how babies were born. He knew how they came to be. People knew back then. This isn't some story that just grew legs throughout time. He knows science. Luke knows science. The God who created out of nothing, who can oversee the formation of the stars and the planets who creates life, certainly can transcend the process of normal conception and pregnancy. This is no problem for a creator God. No problem. This is easy for God. You know who Larry King is? I'm asking this section over here mainly because you might not know who Larry King is. Uh, talk shows and, I, you know, come to think of it, I don't know if Larry King is still around. Is Larry King still around? Still around. Okay, he's still alive. Uh, and he is a pretty famous interviewer. And he was interviewed once and was asked, who is the per- person in history that you would want to interview more than anyone else? And he said, Jesus Christ. Interesting. And then the interviewer asked him, what, what question, if you could interview Jesus, what question would you ask him? And Larry King said, if I could interview Jesus, I would ask him, were you really born of a virgin? Because that, Larry King says, that the answer to that question would, would radically shape and change human history. That's a game-changer answer, not just some aspect, uh, uh, unimportant aspect of our faith. He says it's a game-changing answer. 
that would define human history, in the words of Larry King. So let me suggest, the real fascination of Jesus' birth is not the question, how was he born? I mean, that's somewhat game-changing, but I think Larry King is pointing to a more important question, which really would change human history, and that is why. Second question, why was Jesus born? Virgin birth indicates Jesus is who he says he is, Son of God. Why was Jesus born? So I want to spend the rest of this time talking about why was he born. He was born because the Bible talks about this gap that exists between human beings and and God. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. God sees his creation, calls it good. Genesis 2, the people that God creates, Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden, and they're walking with God. They're carrying on this, this intimate relationship with God, we see. And then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They break God's commands, and then there is this gap. They lose this intimacy with God. But also in Genesis 3, we see that this gap between God and human beings, that that gap broadens, and human relationships are, are broken, and the relationships that human beings have with the creation itself, the world itself, that is broken. So there's this gap. There's this this distance between the way God meant for things to be with us, with us and him, with us and others, with us and the created world, and where things are now. There is this gap. And it's one thing to think, yeah, 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 I see that. I see this gap. The world, yeah, it is going to hell in a handbasket and, and, and start pointing fingers. And that is wrong and this is wrong and those people over there are wrong and that's bad and that's bad and that's bad and that's bad. It's one thing to say all of that. It's another thing to realize, no, 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 no. I am wrong. This gap that we see in the world, we're like, oh, I wish the world could be different. It's not how I want it to be or how God wants it to be. It's another thing to say, that gap, it's in me as well. It's in me. About a century ago, the the London Times asked for leading British writers to um, submit essays based on this question, what is wrong with the world? And so several leading British writers at that time submitted their essays trying to diagnose what's wrong with everything. And one of those writers was G.K. Chesterton, who is a Christian. He submitted his article, his essay, and it was the shortest by far of them all. It was published in the London Times. This is what it what it's actually said from the London Times, from G.K. Chesterton. And this is it. What's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I'm, I'm wrong. I'm, I'm what's wrong with the world. This gap is in me. This gap is in you. It's in every one of us, and we, we work together to make this gap in the world. Sin has tainted all of us. Marred me, marred this world. There's this gap. The Apostles' Creed points to this gap when... We first say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. He's the mighty God. 
and then there's us. There's this gap. Why was Jesus born? Verse 31 of our scripture today. The angel tells Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Now, remember what the name Jesus means? What does it mean? God saves. God saves. Saves us from our sins. That's what um, the angel tells Joseph in, in Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Angel tells Joseph, she will give birth, Mary will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name of Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Why was he born? Heidelberg Catechism, question 36, asks this, this question. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you, this virgin birth? How, how does that benefit you? And the answer is he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness, he removes from God's sight my sin, mine, since I was conceived. Jesus is our mediator. He stands in this gap between us and God. What does it mean that Jesus is our mediator? A few things. First, the word mediator comes from the, uh, the Greek word mesos, meaning Middle. So if you're a musician, you might use mezzo frequently in your terminology, like mezzo forte or mezzo forte, Englishizing that Greek word, kind of in the middle, medium loud. Or maybe you're a mezzo soprano. You're not quite high enough to be a soprano, not quite low enough to be an alto. You're in the middle. Or Mesopotamia. Potamos, meaning rivers, Mesopotamia. It's that land in between, in the middle of the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, from your world geography background there. It means middle. So it comes from the word mesos, meaning in the middle. Jesus stands in the middle between us and God to bridge this gap. Now, he's not like the negotiator. You know what negotiators do? They try to get people who can't get along to get along. A friend of mine was a former negotiator, a hostage negotiator. And you got the you got the, the criminal taking hostages, and you got the law enforcement, and they are not getting along. They're not seeing eye to eye. Jesus isn't a negotiator with us and God. He's not like, oh, they'll never get along. I better step in there and see if I can make this right. That's not the nature of Jesus being our mediator. Instead, Jesus stands in the gap to show that it is possible for us to have what our souls long for more than anything else, and that is a walking relationship with the Almighty God, creator of the heavens and the earth. Finally, uh, Jesus being our mediator, I want to mention historically what theologians, how they describe Jesus serves as our mediator. I'm going to give you three words, and we'll talk about each word. 
um, they talk about Jesus being our mediator as our priest, our king, and our prophet. So throughout the centuries, church leaders, theologians, people think about God. How does, how does Jesus mediate between us and God? Stand in the middle as our priest, our king, and our prophet. Jesus is our priest. He makes atonement for our sins. Think about the, the uh, ancient Israelite priests, one of the most important functions in the temple was to, to make those animal sacrifices. Those animal sacrifices provided that, that symbol, this, this atonement somehow of, of the people's sins, that they could know, okay, I don't have to worry about being squashed by God because we have this ancient sacrificial system. And when we say that Jesus stands in our gap as our priest, we mean that he offered himself up as that, that perfect sacrifice for our sins. He, his death on the cross provided atonements for our sins, the atonement for our sins. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 say that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all people. And he's able to do this. He's able to be our mediator, not just anybody, but he is able to be our mediator. As Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He is able very much so to empathize with us because he has been one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet who did not sin. So Jesus is able to perfectly, that perfect, sinless mediator, sacrifice, um, standing the gap between us and God. Another way that Jesus stands in the gap as our mediator is being our king. Jesus is our king. So look in, in, in verses 32 and 33. Angel tells Mary, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So this, this baby to be born is not just going to be king. He's going to be the king of kings. His kingdom will never end, never will run out. You don't have to worry about him being a good king, and then one day he's going to die, and someone else is going to be king. It'll be a miserable king. No, Jesus' kingdom will never end. The king of kings. And the king institutes his will. That's what we talked about last week about Jesus being our king. His will will be done. But the king did another thing as well. He didn't just institute his will. The king fought for the citizens of his kingdom, didn't he? He fought for his citizens, and we need this, don't we? We need King Jesus to help us fight our battles, and that is what he does. I mean, yes, we have our role in walking forward in adversity, with faith, but we know that Jesus is fighting for us because he is our king. So he fights for us alongside us. That's what King Jesus does. He fights for us. He, we know his goodwill will come about because he is the one fighting for us. And then finally, Jesus stands as our mediator by being our, our prophet. Jesus is our prophet. 
What was the role of prophets in Jesus' day in an ancient Judaism? Well, they were to show people how to walk with God. Jesus is our prophet by showing us. What does it mean to walk with God properly, rightly? What's the right way to walk with God? And, and how did Jesus do that? Well, he, he did it by living this perfect life. He, he trusted God perfectly. He listened to God. He, he walked with God. He, he perfectly obeyed God. He showed us what does it mean to walk rightly with God, this trust, this obedience. Now, prophets weren't too popular in ancient times. So when we say that Jesus is a prophet, that might not be this kind of warm, fuzzy term. Prophets aren't necessarily really maybe appreciated or liked today as well. I mean, if you every once in a while you will meet someone and they'll say, hey, I'm, I'm prophet so-and-so. You guys might not have had, encountered that yet, but there are people in the church that will say, hi, hey, I'm, I'm prophet so-and-so, and, you know, kind of the First reaction may be, hey, okay, I'm going to back up from you a little bit before you do any prophesying on me. So how can we speak of Jesus being our prophet in this assuring way? And and maybe it's this. Jesus is our prophet in that he restores God's people, he restores us to the heart of our faith. And that's what, that's what old, prophets, old Testament prophets did. They, they, were, they were trying to get people back to the heart of their faith. And religious leaders in Jesus' day had, had twisted the, the faith to something that it was, and they turned it into this ritualistic obedience, these religious leaders did. And so they would ask questions of Jesus like uh, the one in Luke chapter 10 which gave Jesus the opportunity to give us a great parable of the, of the, the good Samaritan. But the, the initiating question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the religious leader asked, because they distorted the faith to what rules must I follow so that I can receive the, the blessing of God? How can I earn God's blessing? And Jesus came to show us that eternal life is not about some heavenly scorecard. Not about some heavenly scorecard. How many times have you asked someone, a religious person, or heard this from a religious person? um, How do you go to heaven? And their answer is, well, you just do the right things. You do good. Because surely God will not turn away someone who is doing good. And they've turned heaven as a, as a product of some heavenly scorecard. Am I doing enough good? And Jesus said, that's not what it's about. Rather, it is about trusting and walking with God. And, and then he, he showed us what it's like to do that. And perhaps maybe the, the, the place that he talks about this most simply and clearly is John chapter 17. But Jesus in John chapter 17 is praying to God out loud, but his disciples are with him. So 
It's interesting. He's praying out loud to God, but he's using this prayer as a teaching moment. In other words, he might not be praying everything that he prays in this prayer if all the disciples weren't around. Because he's teaching his disciples about what it means to trust and follow God as he's praying to God. And this is one of the things that he says in this prayer. John chapter 17, verse 3. What is our faith all about? And this is what Jesus says. Now this is eternal life. that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what the heart of our faith is about. Eternal life is not some goal that you get to by doing well in the heavenly scorecard. It is by just knowing God, walking with God, trusting God, knowing who he is. We see how Jesus walked with God, and he prayed to God, and he trusted God. That's Jesus being our prophet, just showing us what the heart of our faith is about. So when you say, I believe Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, you're saying, I believe and I trust that Jesus has paid the price for my sins. I believe and I trust that Jesus is fighting my battles. I believe and I trust that Jesus is showing me what it really means to be in this walk with God. We have these kind of mental reminders we have to, you know, keep directing ourselves towards. But Jesus being born of the Virgin Mary, I mean, it gives us some intellectual content to wrestle with, but also provides some assurances to our hearts as well. And when we think of Jesus as human being, fully human, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God, born of the Holy Spirit, and his birth, I think it reminds us of a few things. One is this, nothing is impossible for the Lord. And in Luke, the, the, the translation that we read, verse 37 puts it like this, for no word from God will ever fail. You look at many other translations, and it it just puts it like this, for nothing is impossible for God. When we think of Jesus born of the Virgin Mary, it's just a reminder to our hearts, nothing is impossible for God. So remember that when your world is quaking and you're like, I have no idea what's going to happen today. I think it's going to be a pretty lousy day. Nothing is impossible for God. If God can enter into the womb of a woman and be born a baby, nothing is impossible for God. And when you're going through a crisis, you just remember that God never panics. (laughs) He can do whatever he wants, and if something is not happening the way you want it to, it's because God does not want it to happen that way. But it's not because he is not able, because nothing is impossible for him. You know, when Mary asks, how in the world can this happen? The angel explains. Look at verse 35. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow your womb, Mary. Overshadow this thing that normally would be closed. It's not unlike... The Holy Spirit described in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit 
was hovering over the waters, overshadowing the waters, just ready to create. And when you feel like you're up against the wall, know what the nature of the Holy Spirit is. It is to create something, to create something in that womb that has been closed, to create something new in this surprising way in your life. Nothing is impossible for the Lord. Two, the virgin birth shows us that God is not afraid to enter our mess. God isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. It's a broken world that God enters in. And listen, it was not the world crying out to God, come save us. The world was not crying out to God, oh, God, will you please come in? God busted in on his own. God is not afraid to enter our mess. God is used to coming into enemy territory. God knows what it's like to live in this world. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was wrestling. And Scripture describes that he... he um, um, that he was sweating, and it was like sweating drops of blood. This He was in agony in the garden. And he was facing these temptations just like you and I do. He could have gotten up and walked off. God knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to live in this mess. And if you for one moment think that my temptations, my giving in a temptation... It was just too shocking, too grievous for God to come in here and be with me. If that's what you're thinking, you are far underestimating how strongly God feels about coming to your aid. And three, Jesus, born of a virgin, reminds us that God is always present. He's always present. It shows that God came for you. There's no more vivid way for God to reveal to us how committed he is to us, to you, by saying, I'm going to come in on your level, on your level, so that you can know who I am, know my heart, look at Jesus, see his heart. That's my heart for you. Jesus says, I'm always with you. I'm with you always. And I, sometimes I wonder, I think about this, how much would you really be afraid if you knew Jesus is with me at every moment? I mean, really? How, how, you, know, you, you, you go to the doctor, you know you're going to be getting some bad news. If you knew beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is right there with you, I mean, really, not, not oh, I hope Jesus is with me, but if you knew he's right there with you, Jesus Christ would you really be, would you really be afraid i don't know i i don't i i think jesus's presence brings peace if you have to admit some failure boy i blew this you have to do that at office at the office tell your boss or you blow a test you blow a class you have this failure and it's staring you in the face if you knew that jesus was right there with you how afraid would you be? I don't know if you'd be all that afraid if you knew that he was with you. 
Luke writes this. It's not on the screens, but the very beginning of his gospel. Shortly before he tells the story of the virgin birth, Luke writes in verses 3 and 4, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, for you, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught, so that we would know that Jesus is always with us. Sometimes you have to reinforce your faith with that fact. Jesus' birth, virgin birth, really happened so that you can know God is with you now. And let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you, you're not a God that shies away from us. You are not a God that gives up on us. You are a God that pursues us to no end so much so that you were willing to enter into this world that you knew would kill you, that you knew would put you to death, that would reject you and despise you. But that is your love for us. And this morning, we want to live in full assurance, full faith of that life-changing love. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.